Stephen. That was beautiful. All kinds of talent that you can share with Christ here at this church. Well, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to the letter to the Ephesians. We move into chapter 3 this morning. But whether you realize it or not, you also, uh, or we also, in moving into chapter 3, we technically also move into chapter 4 simultaneously. Sounds kind of mysterious, doesn't it? It'd be fun to explain that. But this morning, we are going to, as we move into chapter 3, chapter 3 is really interesting here because it's, it's basically a parenthetical thought. Um, and it's not highly arranged or structured very, very clearly. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read the first. Uh, I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and then deal with one aspect of this passage this morning. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, speak to us once again. And grant us eyes that can see and ears that can hear. Grant us tongues that can taste. And grant us, Lord, the desires of our hearts as they are found in you revealing yourself to us. And may we, Lord, as we hear you speak and as you once again reveal these things, may we not only cherish them, but may we indeed wonder over them, and over the privilege of being those who are receiving them. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when we are looking at Christmas, we are looking at the birth of our Savior, what we are looking at is nothing less than God in the manger. It is not just a baby. It is not just a heartwarming family event. It is the entrance of God in a unique way that would change the course of history forevermore. God is in the manger. And this in and of itself is is awe-inspiring. It is meant to to be something that strikes us, that, that, that causes us to be arrested in our interactions with God, with ourselves, and with one another. That all of history is different. That the world is different. That you are different because of the entrance of God into this world as one who has taken on God had entered history so many times in so many different ways. Yet this is the first that he takes on flesh. That he comes to us as one who is in our form. He comes to us as one who enters into the cursed world with us. He comes to us as one who enters into our sufferings as those who live in a cursed world. Before he ever gets to the cross, our our catechism reminds us the sufferings of Christ began as he was there, lying in the manger as one who had taken on flesh and was living in a cursed world. God is in manger. Yes, there was the hope and expectation that the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 would be revealed. And yes, God had provided insights and he had provided uh, little hints along the way, but now what we see in the Christ who is, who is in this manger, is we see the culmination of the promised seed of the woman who has arrived. And it is not what you expect. Paul here tells us that this is a mystery. It is a mystery that that God had told us about, that he had hinted at, that he had revealed here and there, and yet there is something about the fullness of of that promise coming to light in the birth of Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, and in his death and resurrection from the grave. Now, Lord willing, we'll look at this unfolding mystery uh, next Sunday as there's too much here to deal with. But what I want us to look at is, is the implications here of this opening sentence that Paul doesn't actually finish. As as we see here in in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins to describe who he is and, and the situation under which he is living 
Uh, and he does this in order to provide an exhortation and an encouragement to those who are reading these words. But if you notice, for example, in your English translation, especially if you're using the ESV, what you find is after he says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, there's a dash. And after that dash, there is no grammatical connection to what has come before. What this dash is indicating is that Paul is diverting from what he just started to say. Now, you and I do this all the time, but we get away with it because we start typing and then we realize, oh, no, I don't want to say that yet, so we can cut it and then paste it somewhere else. We start to type out a paper uh, and, and through the amazing uh, word processors that we have now, if you want something to, uh, if you start something and you're like, oh, I'm not ready for that yet, you can just move it or you can erase it altogether. When you're writing uh, on, on animal skin, it's a little, little more difficult to decide, oh, let's cut and let's paste this somewhere else. So that's really what's going on here. He has begun a thought and then he gets diverted. And he, he starts to finish this thought in 4.1. Lord willing, we will get to chapter 4. But he starts off this sentence, and then he gets diverted. What he does is he, he provides us a, a, a sentence that, uh, well, he, does, he provides us um, a phrase that does not complete a full sentence. What is it that stops him in his tracks? What is it that as he is about to go into this exhortation to the Ephesians about the implication of their new identity in Jesus Christ and what it means for them in, as they live out that identity in this world, what is it that grabs his attention that he has to stop from talking about them to, if you notice here, talking about himself. He begins to describe his situation as a way of providing encouragement to them in their situation, but he stops. And it's as if you've done this, right? Where as you are writing to someone and as you're trying to encourage them, and so often we do that through empathy, where we try to communicate to the person that, that I've gone through things that are tough as well, and, and here's what helped. And, and as you try to empathize with someone and you reflect over your own situation, Paul, in reflecting over his situation, it stops him in his tracks because everything that he has said about Jesus Christ up to this point in this letter is not mere theology or history. Paul has been explaining the extravagant grace of God in Christ for two chapters. And what has that meant for Paul? Has it meant world-renowned fame? Kind of. But not the good kind. 
Has it led him as he has gone from city to city and from town to town? Has it led people to rejoice that Paul is there and, and to receive him? Has, as he's gone from town to town and city to city, have, have the, the Roman officials said, you know what, we're, we're, we're going to give up Rome and, and we're going to embrace the kingdom of God? Has, has he, as he's going around, is he changing the world as, and turning it into something that it's not? What has Paul received? Well, he tells us right here, he is a prisoner of Christ. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. What has Paul received here? What's, what's the, the gospel message and implications for Paul that, that he has uh, in order to try to encourage people and in order to try to preach Christ? I'm a prisoner for him. He doesn't seem upset. He doesn't provide any warnings. He doesn't say here, hey, now look, this gospel that I preached to y'all, that, that y'all received, now it's put me in prison, so y'all, you know, maybe quiet down a little bit, don't make yourself so conspicuous. No, I, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say a prisoner of Rome. Notice he doesn't say a prisoner of the Jewish authorities. Prisoner of Christ. Paul, the once persecutor of Christ. Paul, the once persecutor of Christ's body. Is now Paul, the persecuted What has the gospel meant for the apostle Paul himself here? Well, it means that he has become a prisoner of Christ. He has given himself over to Christ. And what's his payoff? Prison. At least that's what he starts with. The one who had been devoted to destroying the testimony of Christ in prison for that testimony because everywhere Paul goes, he cannot help but share that testimony. The persecutor has become the persecuted, and the persecuted is very clearly persevering. I, Paul, a prisoner, of Christ Jesus. But notice, he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul, before his conversion, he tells us that he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. He was of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. And in the eyes of the religious authorities of his day, 
as a Pharisee, he was considered a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was considered to be without fault according to the way they were interpreting things. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisee. You think his view of Jews who embraced Jesus was pretty low? What would have been his view of Gentiles? Gentiles were dirty dogs. Gentiles were those who were so unclean you couldn't even be in your presence or in their presence or, or they would contaminate you. You couldn't talk to them unless you just had to. And even then, oh, you had put yourself in such danger to be around a Gentile. He wouldn't have spoken to them unless absolutely necessary. He would not have gone around them at all so as not to become impure or unclean. He wouldn't have eaten with them. He would have delighted in seeing their destruction. And yet the Apostle Paul is here telling us that he now loves them and serves them to the point of his own harm. And there are no regrets. Paul's life, not just his words, Paul's life here is a testimony to this mystery that God has been unfolding in history that finds its ultimate expression in Jesus Christ. His words, yes, but also his very life. Notice here that Paul goes uh, from, as an unbeliever, considering himself the Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning there was no one better than me, to now in Christ, considering himself one who is the least of all the saints. That's a bit of a change, wouldn't you say? It's a bit of a different direction. That's a bit of a, of a different self-perception that he has gone from being the best of the followers of God, of, of the Hebrews, to he is now the least of all the saints. What Paul celebrates is no longer himself. What he celebrates is what he has received because of Christ. In Christ, Paul has become a steward of God's grace. He has not just become a recipient of that grace, he has become a steward of that grace. It, it includes receiving. You can't be a steward of something that you haven't received, but in receiving it, Paul realizes that it's not just for him. It is for him, and it is so vital, it is so important, and yet it is not for him to take and to hoard and keep to himself. He is a steward of, of this gift of God in order to be a conduit of that gift to those around him. He has become a steward of God's grace. He has become a preacher of the gospel he has become a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of Gentiles. Gospel that 
Paul is preaching a gospel that has already radically transformed Paul himself. And even as he is writing a letter to try to encourage this young church that is facing a, a tribulation and persecution, as this young church has, has, has been saved out of dark, the darkness of mystery, or of, of, the, of the, the mystery religions, the, the dark magic, and as they have been powerfully brought out of that, and as their conversion has threatened the economy of their city. Paul writes to encourage them, and even as he is doing so, he reflects upon his own interaction with Christ, and it causes him to stop mid As the birth of Christ, as we have been focusing on that throughout Advent, and as we have, are celebrating that now in, in Christmas, with all the, the great things that come with it, have you been arrested to the point of stopping either in a thought or in a spoken sentence? Have you been, have you been stopped mid-sentence over how awesome it is? Not just that Christ was born, but that God has given himself to you in this life. That's not to say, if you haven't, you're horrible. To encourage you, as you ponder upon these things, to be willing to not just ponder upon them as truth or as history, or as theology, but as the God who has become present to you, who has transformed you, who has turned you from one who hated him into one who treasures him in Jesus Christ. See, as God is revealing himself it is for that purpose to stop us, to arrest us, and to cause us to look at ourselves, to look at him, and to look at one another and the world around us and see things differently. What Paul is talking about here is he has become a recipient and he is a steward. of something that is not simply revealed, something that is living and active and transformed. The mystery, as we will look at next week, mystery is it's one of those things that is often misunderstood, and I'm not going to explain it today because we don't have time. But put very simply, God, as he was revealing this mystery over time and, and through these different hints, make no mistake, what God is doing is revealing his heart. He is revealing his heart, his intentions, his purposes. And what Paul says here is that he 
by the power of Christ has been drawn into the heart of God, has been drawn into the intentions of God, has been drawn into the eternal purposes of God. And God's purposes, as we noted last week, was to send a Savior to the nations, not simply to Israel. Even in Malachi, as we read this morning, God's intentions were to be worshipped throughout the world, not just in Israel. God's purposes have always been global. And what God has been doing throughout history is he has been on a global mission by which he would rescue people out of darkness and bring them into Part of what God's heart is as it is being expressed here in the Apostle Paul that God has a heart that has a global purpose and intention. Is that our purpose? When you get up, you consciously reflect upon what you're going to do that day as a participation in a global mission of the eternal purposes of the triune God? Or do you do like me? Start going through your, your to-do list. Well, today i got to do this, i got to do that, and then start complaining to yourself about the things that you got to do. God is revealing in this mystery of Christ, he's revealing his heart, his intentions, and his purposes, and they are global and they are eternal. Why do we want to take up English as a second language, as a ministry at this church? Because it is a means by which we will not only have the joy and satisfaction of helping people from around the world who are living here learn how to better communicate so that they can, uh, so that they can uh, experience to a greater degree their as those created in the image of God and to participate within this community well, but we also get the opportunity to share the hope of Jesus Christ with them. Yes, we are going to be teaching English. We're going to be teaching them how to speak better so that they can have better jobs and interact better in the jobs that they have and be able to talk their, to their neighbors and interact within this community, but we also get to preach Christ to them. We are taking up this ministry because it is a participation in the global purposes and eternal mission of God in Christ. What Paul is revealing here is this global significance of Christ. He's also revealing the value of the gospel. How valuable is the gospel? It is valuable enough to become a prisoner of Christ on behalf of people that you used to think were dirty and nasty and, and subhuman. The value here of the gospel is revealed in, the, in, in Paul having a change of perspective and having a change of purpose, giving himself to the one he persecuted and doing so on behalf of those that he wished dead. What's your perspective?
Not just the theology of, yeah, we know everyone's a sinner. But you know those real sinners. The Democrats. Joking. Who is that person? Or who is that, 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 that subculture? Or who is that demographic that you consider to be less than? Because of commitment that they have, which is an expression of their darkness and their being trapped in sin. What is it? What is that demographic that when you think about them, you're just like, mm, wouldn't want them at my church. And if you think that hasn't been thought or said out loud, you're naive. Because our hearts are still desperately expressing a sinfulness in which we put our personal preferences over the eternal purposes of God. Amen. What did Christ think of us when he said to his father, I will go for them? And I will take on flesh for them. And I will suffer for them. He deciding, I'll do that for the people that are nice. The people that I like. The people I, you know, that I jive with. We like the same music. Right? We watch the same movies. We enjoy the same stories. We live in a, in a fairly similar geopolitical perspective. You know, we share politics. Jesus looked upon us and saw us for what we were, rebels, sinners. And on behalf of rebels and sinners, he gave himself. Not just to the point of maybe becoming a prisoner, but to die. What is your perspective of those on the outside? What's your perspective of those who have different commitments, who express their sin differently than you express your sin? What is your perspective? Does your heart break for them? Or do you want to go around correcting them? What is your perspective? Lastly, this reveals the transformative power of redemption. That being in Christ is not simply about receiving salvation. It is about becoming changed and reshaped into the image of the Savior himself. It reveals the transformative power of redemption. For the one who, was the le- who considers himself the least of all the saints has received the gift of God's grace, has become a preacher of unsearchable riches, a light bearer to those dwelling in darkness, and a revealer of the heart of God for sinners. Persecutor has become the persecuted. And even if I were to describe what Paul is saying about himself without using the name Paul, well, if I were to say that there was one who was sent by the Father, in order to come and to preach good news to those who were lost in sin. 
And he came to preach good news to those who were, who were against him, to those that he was supposed to not like. If I were to describe someone that was sent by the Father to preach the good news that salvation could be found with God, not because of one's own righteousness, but only because of God's grace. And if I were to tell you, in order for him to accomplish this preaching ministry of the good news, he would have to suffer. And he would have to suffer wickedness at the hands of wicked men in order to accomplish this mission. Who would you be thinking about? See, beloved, when we take on this eternal mission and become participants in what God is doing globally in Jesus Christ, that transformative power of God's grace is not only going to make us look more like Jesus in terms of our morality, our lives are going to reflect more and more the mission that exaltation comes through humiliation. That suffering leads to glory. Not earthly glory leads to heavenly glory. But earthly trials and tribulations and sufferings lead to exaltation and glory with the triune God. This is what it means if we're going to take up the global mission of God in Jesus Christ. And for those who were recently elected to office, are you ready to become a servant where you freely give up liberties and freedoms and opportunities that you would have in order to serve God's people and in order to embody the good news of Jesus Christ, not only to those who are here, but those who are on the outside. Those who don't look like us, those who don't speak our own language, those who may smell bad or, or, or you know, like weird things, are you ready to freely give up your preferences in order to reveal to them, not only in words, but in a life, that God loves and his grace is for those who are against him, that he offers that grace freely if one will but simply decide to quit being their own God and to embrace the God, the God of love, the God of purpose and life. This is what is before us as we continue to celebrate Christmas. God in the manger, which should be arresting enough the eternal purposes of God, which have changed us, have given us new life, and called us from prisoners for Christ, prisoners of Christ for the nations. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, bless us as the gospel, as the truth of your word so often, it's easier for us to to keep it objective. It's easier for us to talk about it in terms of history and theology, to talk about it in terms of, of objective truth. 
but becomes scary when we start thinking about these things as you reveal them. Transformative. As things giving us not only a new identity as those uh, who escape judgment, but give us the new identity of a shared life with the triune God who has a global purpose and an eternal mission. Lord, help us to embrace your grace in Christ so that we who are the least of all the saints would be arrested under the privilege of what it means to be counted your treasured possession and to therefore give ourselves unreservedly to you. We love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, arrest us of our self-righteousness. Arrest us of the way that we look down on other people. Arrest us from the ways that we like to judge others as being less than us and less than worthy. And instead, Lord, help us to rest in the judgment that you have rendered in Christ. We are forgiven, that we are counted righteous, that we are your sons and daughters. May, us, may, may this lead us, Lord, to live as sons and daughters, drawing attention to your grace, to your truth, not by being jerks and making demands, but in taking up the cross as we follow Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.